Okay, now give me a smile. Now's the happy part. <laughs> okay, session four of Unlocking the Power of the Cross. I've, I've left this as the last session. <coughs> I felt it was really important to have three sessions uh, looking at all the other parts, but this one we'll go through fairly quickly, the last three. But I want to, first of all, just look at the, the parallel to the exodus. <clears throat> you know, I talked about the crossing over. But let's just quickly look at the, the parallel of the exodus to the cross. Before we do that, let's just pray that God gives us extra grace for this last session. Father, we really need revelation. Lord, will you expand our spirits to cope with fresh revelation and really to get hold of something in our spirits during this final session? We want to see it and understand it and take hold of it. In Jesus' name. So as you look at the parallel to the exodus to the cross, you realize that we've crossed out of Satan's slavery over the Red Sea. Now, the Red Sea is the picture of baptism. So we've come out of that slavery. We've been baptized. Remember that at the Red Sea, every single Egyptian was killed. So, and I believe that. You know, when people get baptized, I say to them, now believe it. You're not going to be pursued. You know, you're going to be dealing with yourself, but you're not going to be pursued. Believe that. And I think it's important people understand we have authority in that realm. And then we've got to get people to get tired of going around in religious circles and tired of being tied to the world. And when they finally get through, that they cross over the Jordan and they cross over by faith into this fullness of inheritance, then we've got to realize and help people to understand <coughs> this is where the real fight begins. This is the fight of faith. This is what we call the fight of faith. You see it in 1 Timothy 6, you know, come on, fight the fight of faith. But it's a good fight of faith, and you know what a good fight is. Every little boy knows what a good fight is. It's one that you win. So we've got to recognize we're being called to a good fight. It's one that he's already won, but we've got to engage in it. We don't win if we don't engage, but if we do engage, we've won. But we've got to fight that and we've then got to get people to realize that there's so much to possess. Every single promise is won through faith and patience. Simple thing. But we've got to take promise by promise by promise. As we begin to get into the promises, they become, the word becomes flesh in our lives. Now, I know that there's a lot of the word that is already flesh in my life. It's real. It's tangible. But there's so much more. And we should never rest on our laurels. We should still be searching the scripture for more promises to actually make real in our lives so that we can possess it. But by faith, we have the first sign. We have power over sin. We have power over Satan. We have power over uh, ourself. All of those things that we struggled with, you know, th there is a power there. One of the things that I find very difficult to get people to believe is that we can actually be virginal. Now, in the modern society, people find it really difficult to understand that the power of the cross, should, we should have faith that we can stand before God virginal, absolutely pure, pristine, clean, white, like virgins. And you see, many people just think, well, no, that's, that's just make-belief. But no, it's not. You see, we've got to believe there is power in the blood to make people who have totally messed up sexually in every kind of horrific thing to be standing there totally virginal. Now, if we don't believe that, we've got no message for this generation because they're all messed up. So we've got to get faith for this whole area. And it's a, it's a really special area. I remember when uh, my father-in-law was in, in New York, uh, he was teaching some of the interns in this church. And uh, he met this precious, I mean, really beautiful young girl who was an intern. Now, she had come off the streets. She'd been uh, part of the street gangs in New York. She'd been a prostitute for many years. Really pretty, pretty girl. And she'd just lived in prostitution all her life. Then she got saved through one of the street teams. Came into uh, the internship and... Guess what happened? She fell in love. But the guy she fell in love with 
was Mr. Squeaky Clean, fourth generational pastor's kid. You know, everybody, every, every single person, that, all his lineage was pastors or holy people. She could not get it. She couldn't get her mind around it. How could I possibly give myself to such a holy man? So my father-in-law just sat with her and just really counseled her and uh, just told her about how she could be virginal. And then he showed her the verse, and I haven't got it here, but it's in Hebrews, which talks about how he presents us as a pure virgin in Christ. He presents us as a pure virgin in Christ. She got it. Literally a flash of revelation that God wanted to present her as a pure virgin to this young man. And she walked down that aisle in her white dress, absolutely radiant, head up high, virginal, pure, not the slightest bit of stain, prostitution, it was gone. She was absolutely pure, presenting herself as a pure virgin. That's, that's our gospel. I mean, what a gospel. What good news to this, to this generation. And you see, if we haven't, if we, if we, if we don't know that, we're just preaching ideas and theology to people. This has got to be so tangible, so real, that people who've messed up actually do experience the power of the cross. He's an amazing God. But we've got to first strip off Colossians 2, and then Colossians 3, we can put on all of who he is. There's got to be that stripping away. And the biblical process is first Calvary, first crucifixion, and then comes the resurrection and the Pentecost. And many people try and shortchange that and come straight through to the, the Pentecost. It doesn't work. It is Calvary and crucifixion. There's got to be a dying. There's got to be a stripping away. There's got to be a really a facing of all those things I talked about, the wrath of God and all the, that other side. Once we face that, taking responsibility, then we can just know the resurrection power, the resurrection life, and the Pentecost, that he clothes us with his power. We can carry so much of his power. So as we step into the other side of the cross, the fifth stage of the cross, when we finally tip over, we are now stepping into covenant. We're covenanted to Christ. And that means we're crossing over from Satan's control into the fullness of our sonship. And this is where we've got to understand the fullness of what biblical sonship is. And I talked about this a little bit during the talks on Ephesians. But for those who weren't there, we've got to understand biblical sonship. The word son is the word huios, which means that we are the sons and heirs. It's a word which means, firstly, that you reach the age of 30, that you have the character of the father, and thirdly, you have the full right to inherit everything from the father. Age 30, character of the father, we have the right to possess and take hold of the full inheritance of the father. Now, in biblical terms, the picture is that we're not supposed to be like the prodigal. Now, the prodigal had all the faith to take the inheritance. He had the faith, but he had no character. We're not supposed to be the other son, who is the elder brother. He had bags of character, but he had zero faith. And you see, neither of those are right. And many of us, and you see it sometimes, people just go for God, they've got bags of faith, but then they mess up because they've got no character. We need to have the faith and the character together. So the one true son, Jesus came as the one true son at the age of 30. He marched down at the age of 30, understanding the law of sonship. He knew that he was 30. He knew he had the character of the father, and he knew that he had the right to inherit the fullness of all that his father had. And in those days, at the age of 30, the father had a big party, and it was a legal, it was a legal time. He would then stop the party and he would point at his son and he would say, this is my beloved son, my Huios, an heir. And at that moment, legally, everything was transferred onto the son. The full power, wealth, authority was transferred to that son. 
Now, when you understand that, you understand what happened in Luke 3 and Luke 4. Because Jesus marched down to the Jordan. He stood there having been confronted by God saying, will you do it? Will you make a commitment to be married to humanity? Will you just embrace all the fullness of that that sin? And he went under that water. And as he came up out of that water, heaven opened and God had a party. And he shouted down, this is my beloved son and heir. And at that moment, for the first time in human history, there was a human being standing on earth who legally had access to the fullness of the throne of grace. All power, all authority could be accessed to him. And that's why the alarm bells went off in hell. That's why every demon was mobilized to try and steal from him that one thing, which was faith in his sonship. If you are the son, if you are the son, if you are the son. And you and I are no different. As soon as we step over into this sonship by faith, then all hell breaks loose. And we find that the devil will keep on saying, who do you think you are? This is just make-believe. There's no way you can step into that sonship. And you see, all hell will break loose against us. And we've got to understand what is happening here. We're crossing into the fullness of his inheritance, the fullness of his sonship. Now, sadly, many people come to faith, it gets through to salvation, and they live very good Christian lives, but they never inherit anything. They never understand that there is an inheritance. You probably heard Spurgeon's story about the, the, the impoverished woman he went to see. There was this completely impoverished woman uh, in his church, lived in dire poverty, and he went to sort out her house after she died. And what shocked him was that on the wall, framed in the, on the wall, was a last will and testament. Last will and testament that she had been given an extraordinary inheritance. Now, she couldn't read. She thought it was a beautiful document. She framed it. She had no clue that she could legally inherit a vast fortune. She died in poverty. And that's a picture of so many of us. We frame it. We theologize it, theologize it. But we don't live it. We've got to enter it and actually begin to start allowing it to manifest in our lives, the fullness of our sonship. Now, Galatians 4.1 says that what I'm saying, and this is Paul writing to the Galatian church, he talks about three types of people who live in the house. But he says, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. And he's talking about three types of people who are in the house. There's the slave in the house, there's the child, and there's the, there's the son. And he's saying, listen, in the house, in the house of God, there are many people who are still slaves. Just like I was for 18 months. I was still a complete slave in the Christian union, singing the songs, going to church. I was still not born again, even though I knew the Bible better than most. You see, we can still be in the house of God and still enslaved. But then we can be children, a child, a child anipios. It means a little toddler, wonderful, beautiful, born again, but hasn't got a clue that he owns the whole estate. So really, he is no different from a slave. And people looking at many Christians, they think, well, quite honestly, I don't see any difference between you and you. The difference between the slave and the child. Because there is no difference, because neither of them have access to the full wealth. The son... And that's who we're called to be. We're called to be sons who access the fullness of our inheritance. We look different. We, we, we live different. We carry a presence. There's something about us. People think, you're different. There's a difference there. And that's a scary verse. As long as we stay as children, we may be born again. As long as we stay childlike in our faith, we're no different from a slave, even though we own the whole estate. And so many Christians live 
with no more faith than a non-Christian. Yes, they've got saving faith, but they have no kingdom faith that can advance the kingdom and actually go into the inheritance. Now, the moment you and I cross the Jordan, the moment we say, right, that's it. I'm, I'm in here. I'm going to cross this Jordan. I'm going to stop going around in circles. I'm all out. I'm going to go for God. The moment we do that, all hell does break loose. And we have to fight exactly the same battle in the wilderness that he had to fight. Everything, every demon in hell will be there in our face to try and make us realize that we are stupid, we are insignificant, there's no legal right why we can do it. You know, he will just be going for us to make us doubt that we have the legal right to be sons of God. And by the way, sons are both male and female. Females, Huey asks is both male and female. In Christ, in the Son of God, there's neither male nor female. It's all men and women have the right to inherit. So in Galatians 3.26, we say that we see that we are all, that means both men and women, we are all sons of God through one thing, through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. We're baptized into him, we're clothed with him. Christ means the anointed one. So we're clothed with the anointing. There's something that comes on us which makes us look different. We've given him all of our filthy rags of righteousness. We've given him all our puny weapons and our excuses. We've given him our life. We've given him, you know, we give him everything. But provided we give him everything, we can then take everything. And biblically, you know, we're talking about covenant here. And in those days, a biblical covenant, you know, it had a ceremony. I'm not talking about the, the animals being torn in two, but there was a biblical ceremony for making people become in covenant and being one. And in those days, you see it with David and Jonathan, they would exchange cloaks. We give him our dirty rags of righteousness. He gives us his mantle. He gives us, you know, we're clothed with Christ. We're clothed with his authority. There's something that happens. We give him our, his, ours and we take his. And then they would exchange weapons. We give God our puny weapons and our excuses. We just say, God, I'm not going to defend myself anymore. But we take on his weapons. 2 Corinthians 10, you know, the weapons that we fight with are not fleshy. They're, they're mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. We've got his weapons. We don't fight with our weapons. We fight with spiritual weapons of, of Christ. And then they would exchange their names. Remember, Abraham became Abraham. There was a, a, a joining of names. So we take the name of Jesus. I know we say it in prayer, in the name of Jesus. But basically, we're now standing in his name with the authority of Christ. We know we're Christians, little Christs. And that is the authority that we have. We, we, we bear his cloak, his weapons. We bear his name. But also, we have his blood. And in those days, they would... Uh, put a cut on their wrists and they would mingle the blood on the wrists. And as they came into covenant, they would literally just put a, a slit there on the wrist and they would mingle blood. And people who were in covenant with a number of different tribes would have lots of these little slits. And that's how David Livingston, you know, David Livingston had come into covenant with many different tribal groups when he went to Africa. He had done that covenantal ceremony of just mingling blood. And then you understand what it means when the Bible says God raises his mighty right hand. I'm in covenant with them. Don't you even mess with these guys. I'm in covenant with these people. God raises his mighty right hand. Devil, back off. We begin to realize there's a covenant happening here. In those days, they used to exchange rings. Sign of authority. They took that legal authority. They exchanged promises. We do the same thing in our wedding ceremony. Our wedding ceremony is purely covenantal. You know, the robes, the ring, the name. You know, our wedding ceremonies is just exactly the same as the old, the old pictures of covenant. Promises. We make vows to each other. And then it's sealed. It's sealed with the blood. And as a man and woman come together with that breaking of the hymen, there is the shedding of blood which seals. And as an anthropologist, 
uh, well, that's what I did at university. I, I was always fascinated by that, that it didn't matter. They could go through the ceremony of wedding of, of a, a guy and a girl, but they were not joined until they could prove the next morning that there had been blood shed and that she'd been a virgin. See, the blood guarantees and seals the contract. Jesus shed his blood. It was a blood-sealed contract. And that's what we're entering. We're entering something that is extraordinary. You know, we're actually taking all of his, his world onto us. And 2 Peter 1.3 says that we have got everything. Let's read it here. In fact, why don't we say it out loud to keep us awake. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, <coughs> escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. What an incredible thing. You see, he's given us everything, everything we need, but it's through those promises. It's covenantal here. The promises are there, and through those promises, we've got everything for intimacy, for faith, for love, but there is the condition. Colossians 2, remember? Colossians 2, 11 talks about we're so, we've got to have that circumcision of heart, and do we do that by putting our faith in the power of God? Now, <coughs> this is going to be quite controversial, but do we realize the power of the resurrected Christ we're stepping into. Because the Christian message is not just that Jesus rose from the dead. We've got to break that. It's, it's not about the fact that Jesus just came back to life. That is not the Christian message. Other people were raised from the dead. The Bible talks about quite a number of people who were raised from the dead, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew 27, 52 talks about many holy people were raised from the dead at exactly the same time. You know that all the tombs shook and many people came back to life. The miracle of Lazarus was far greater in terms of length because it was four days, not three. So why don't people run around preaching about Lazarus? They don't. They preach about Jesus. The thing and the difference is that every one of those people that came back to life, they came back in their human body. They are all long since dead. When they came back to life, they were all subject to sin, subject to sickness, subject to death, subject to all that we are still subject to. They came back to life. But Jesus was different. We've got to get a revelation of this. Revelation, the power of this resurrection. Because if you, if you look at, let's look at this scripture here. Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. That is not, he was not crying out for God to save him from death. That word from is ek, and it means up, out, from within death. So Jesus himself interceded before God and actually obtained his resurrection up, out, from within death. He wasn't asking God to deliver him from death. He was pleading with God to then, once he died and paid for the sins of humanity, that he would be rescued up, out, from within death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. That is the power of the resurrection. He died as the last Adam. Yes, he was fully human. He died as the last Adam, fully human, still subject to sin, sickness, death. Even though he never sinned, he was still subject to it. He died as the last Adam, but when he was raised, he was raised as the new man from heaven. He came as a new man from heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. He says you know, he was a new man, a new creation. That's who he is, and that's who we are. 
He had legal power over every single thing. He had all power in heaven and earth. He was not subject to sin. He was not subject to death. He was not subject to sickness. He was a completely different person. This is the man Christ Jesus we're called to reflect. This is the man Christ Jesus that we are part of. This is who we are. We're not called to, to worship a man who just came back to life. It's who he was as he came back up out from death. It was a new creation. And the mystery of this, <coughs> and I find this such a mystery, that God himself birthed the new man just as he had birthed the woman out of the side of Adam, the first man. So God birthed the second man, the new creation, out of the side of his son. The spear was thrust in his side and outflowed blood and water. A new creation was birthed. That is the bride of Christ, that new creation. That is who we're part of. It was birthed out of the side of Jesus in the same way that it was birthed out of the side of Adam. This is who we belong to. That is the church. That's the power of it. No longer subject to the curse of sin, sickness, death, and all the other stuff. But we don't know it. We've got to embrace it by faith. John 19.34 talks about one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. God said, John, look at that. That is significant. What was significant about it? Blood and water. It was the birthing. The waters were breaking. A new creation was being born. And that is who we are part of, that new creation. That's the Christ that we clothe ourselves with. And if anyone is in Christ, they are that new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That is how clinical it is. It's not just maybe. If anybody is in Christ by faith, the old has gone. The new has come. We are a new creation. There's something different about us. What a salvation. Wow. You should be jumping up and down. <laughs> what a salvation. It is unbelievable. That's how we become, we get into that sonship. The fullness, he says, all power in heaven and earth. That's, that's what the Son has. But then he transferred it to us. Luke 10, he says, you know, I'm transferring it all to you, giving you all my power, all my authority. Nothing by any means will harm you. We step into that sonship. We step into that authority. Wow, what a sonship. We've got to get hold of this. That is so important that we step into that sonship. I'm going to have to go through these fast. But then the sixth stage of the cross. We are then covenanted into his body. Now this is where we're crossing over from self into service. But it's spirit-led service. We read in Matthew 20, verse 28, that it says one of the... No, it's Matthew... 2028. That's it. One, just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In one verse, you've got it. The Son of Man serving and then sacrifice. And so that's what we cross over into. We recognize that we cross over into his sonship as the Son of Man. We come to serve, not to, to be served but we also come to give our life, suffering with him, sharing in his sufferings. And you see, sonship leads us to service, and that leads us to sacrificial suffering. But it's why. What is this thing of being, joining the body about? You see, this covenant to his body, covenant to a local group of believers, is about, it's God's way of disciplining self. We're crossing over into his body. That means I can no longer live for myself. In the same way that I cross over into marriage, I can no longer live for myself. I've got to blow out my candle. You know, we live for each other. Same as we cross into the body. There's a covenant with the body. 
Every, every single church is imperfect. So we've got to commit ourselves to a group of believers. And then we stay with that group of believers. We're living with them. We're being shaped by them, disciplined through by the Father, through that group of believers. I talked about this a lot in the talk on Ephesians. But Christian faith and victory works from within the safety of the body. We're not called to live an independent Christian life. And I've met too many people that think, I can be holy, I can do it by myself. I don't need the body. Absolute rubbish. You need the body because it's in the body that <coughs> that self is disciplined. And we slowly begin to discover that wonderful thing of serving, serving, serving. That's what ministry is. It's just serving. So we see in Ephesians 4.16 that it says that from him, that's from Jesus, the whole body is joined and it's held together by every supporting ligament. And it grows and it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So we grow to intimacy, we grow to unity, we grow to maturity, we grow to the fullness of the spirit. All those wonderful things, intimacy, the unity, in fact, it's the other way around. It's, it's unity and then intimacy. And then we come into that maturity and the fullness of the Spirit. And we begin to start building each other up, using that wonderful secret fuel of encouragement, which has been lost by the body of Christ. <laughs> Actually learning daily to encourage each other, to build each other up and make people feel special. Make people look good, feel good. Not pampering them, but just telling them, feeding them with the word of God, saying, this is what God says about you. And the truth is that we never grow until we're planted. It doesn't happen by yourself. Until we get planted in the soil of a good body, we don't grow. And I remember how God challenged me. I was so damaged that when I first came to Christ, I found it really difficult to come inside a church I remember I used to hang around the outside of the church because I was too frightened of coming into the church in case somebody would just put their arms around me and give me a great big charismatic hug. So I was, I was terrified. And eventually I, I slipped into the back seats of the church. And because I was so in love with him, I would just fling my hands in the air. I'd just worship and worship. I just loved him. But, but I needed the body. And then they thought, wow, you love to worship. So they hiked me out of the back row and led me down to be the worship leader. And I was terrified. And it, but it was all a part of the journey of healing and restoring, making me believe that God could use me. But it's a journey. We need each other. So many people find it so difficult to just be joined to others. We need to be part of the body and allow the body to work with us. Now, why is it so important? Because we've got a daily choice to either live in selfishness or to live in service. We either live in the flesh or we live in the spirit. It's a daily walk. And this is the discipline, hand of God. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And that's how we grow in holiness. That's how we grow, and it's, remember, it's his holiness. That's how we grow in righteousness and peace. And this is where our pride our arrogance, our independence, and all the rough areas get smoothed out. You know, he levels the mountains, but he also lifts up the valleys. Gets some of those crooked ways straightened, and then he smooths over some things, and then the glory of God appears. And there's a wonderful sense of being dealt with by God. And I shared a lot of, about this in the Ephesians talk, about how God uses the church, first of all, as a hospital, People need to be healed. They come into church broken, damaged. It's a hospital, first of all. People get healed. They get set free of different stuff. Then it becomes, secondly, a family. Their relationships are reformed. They get rebuilt. And then it becomes a school. They then begin to get taught stuff. They get, begin to get basic discipleship, begin to grow. And then, fourthly, it becomes a training camp where we begin to get equipped and given specific weapons and, and brought into our full sonship and authority, and finally it becomes an army. But it's that progression of the hospital, 
to the family, to the school, to the training camp, and to the army. And that is how God fashions us. And the Bible says that God gives us people as gifts. Ephesians 4, ministries, apostles, prophets, and all those. To equip us, but it's actually the word katatizo, which means to, to repair the nets, because so many of our nets are broken. Our lives have got holes in them. We need to be repaired as people so that we can be thrown back out to fish other people back in. And then oikodemio, to be built together, to be rebuilt in all of our relationships, that all of our broken relationships get repaired and we begin to start finding our place within the body. You see, Father's dream is not just breaking us out of slavery, breaking us out of sin, sickness, and all the other stuff. Father's dream is a people of intimacy, intimacy with him, walking in the garden with him, so that we could reflect his glory. Right from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.26, he said, I'm going to make man to be a reflector of me. I want to create somebody who will reflect the very glory, be my image and reflect my glory. And that's who we're called to be. Together, we reflect his glory. And it's so important to understand that is what God wants of our lives. We're called into koinonia. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, we with unveiled faces. We've got to take down our facades. We've got to stop pretending we're religious people. With unveiled faces, we all together, it's not individually, we all together then reflect the Lord's glory. And we're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That happens when we're in the body. Transparent, living in the light. 1 John 5, 1 John 1, verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. All about the light and what it does to us. We've got to choose to be transparent like that. And fellowship, koinonia, means that we have a, a, a completely un, united, u, u, united life, a union of life, and a union of purpose. It means restored intimacy, but also restored fruitfulness. And in Ephesians 2.14, it talks about the fact that Jesus himself is our peace. He's made the two one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh all the law with its commandments and regulations. And his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. You see, that's what the cross is about. The cross is the place of complete fusion and reconciliation. The dividing wall is broken. And biblical peace is not human peace. We make peace in our marriages and we just decide to stop fighting. But biblical peace is where you've not only decided to stop fighting, but you actually lay down your weapons and you cross over your weapons, you re-embrace and you remake covenant, and you become one again. Biblical peace is irene, and that was the word used. It means peace, irene, but it, it's a word used for the breaking of a bone. When a bone is broken and it rejoins, the place where it joins, it comes to peace. It's stronger there than it ever was before. The place of joining is stronger than it's ever been before. And you see, Jesus is our peace. He's the one who fuses us stronger than it's ever been before with God. Renewed covenant, but also healed and restored relationship. That is Irene. And in him, <coughs> and I'm repeating a bit of the stuff that I did in Ephesians, but it's all part of this body. We are mashed together in a place where we take off our outer skins, outer pretenses, and we're forced together, Ephesians 2.22, we're forced together into being a place where God himself can come and dwell. Now that is extraordinary. It's the body that comes together in unity. That's where God wants to dwell. And if you want to draw down heaven, get fused together. Get a bunch of people who strip away their outer facades and begin to be real. Hey, I was in a meeting when I was first saved in South Germany in Schloss Hulach, 
Youth with a Mission. We were desperate. All of us were desperate. We were all spirit-filled, but we were desperate. We, we, you know, we, we just didn't even feel we were saved. We were about 50 of us crying out to God, praying. And as we did that, we began to think, why don't we just get real with each other? And one by one, we started standing up and saying, this is what's happening in my life. I remember a girl standing up and saying, look, I feel completely hard. I haven't wept for months. I don't even feel a passion for, for, for getting people saved. She said, I just feel so hard. What is wrong with me? Then another person would stand up and talk about the state of their heart. One by one, people began to be honest. All the facades came down, and suddenly, God thought, I like this. I'm coming to join the party. And suddenly, the Spirit of God fell on that little room. I've only been in a few meetings, maybe three meetings like this in my life. Literally, the heavy presence of God fell on that place. The kabod, the heavy presence of God. Every one of us was physically taken off our seats and pressed down onto the floor. We wept and wept because God had showed up. He was in the room. I wept and wept. It's the only time of my life God has audibly spoken to me. It absolutely ruined me for life. Because you see, once you've been in the presence of God, you've heard his voice. You can't play religious games, play all these weird religious... You, know, you want God. You want the reality of who he is. You don't want anything else. And that is what you become addicted to pursuing, to bring the presence of God. That's what motivated David to bring back the presence of God to Israel. He wouldn't be stopped. He had to do whatever it took to bring back the presence. But it happens when people get real. It happens within the body when facades come down. That's exactly what happened in Count von Zinzendorf's estate. All these refugees were completely fighting each other, and they were just a nightmare from different, different nations. Zinzendorf said, guys, we're going to meet, and we're going to break bread together, and we are going to start forgiving each other and getting right. And as they broke bread, on that day, August the 13th, whatever it was, 1737, the fire of God fell. God thought, I like this. I'm going to join the party. That birthed the Moravian revival. It exploded over the whole world. Influenced Peter Bowler, who then came across to talk to Wesley. Wesley got zapped by the Holy Spirit. It's a, and the rest is history. It started when people got real, but it started in the body. We have got to get into the body. Not church. I'm talking about real fellowship, real honesty, real, this is me. That's people who know me. It's that humble place, and forgive me for using this expression, but it's that humble place that God has to bring us where he can reinfect us with his heavenly virus. If you listen to me enough, you'll hear me talking about the heavenly virus. But it's, it's, that is the glory of God. You see, the glory of God was the reflection of the perfect relationship of the Godhead. When we come into that perfect relationship, something happens. There's an infection that happens. That, there's an incredible sense of a heavenly virus that begins to burn in us. Now, the early church was that united. They were fighting each other all the time. So Jesus had to throw them in the upper room, close the door, just like, kids, get upstairs, sort out your mess, and you're not coming down until you've sorted it out. They, and they would, you know, it took them 10 days to get through all their competition and all that. After 10 days, he said, okay, you're okay, you're humble enough, now I'm going to come. And he came, and the power of God just exploded out of that. Sometimes God's got to throw us into the room and lock us up and say, I'm not coming, you're not coming out until you, you're, you've sorted out your petty fighting of denominations and all your petty churchianity. He says, come on, sort your act out, and then I'm coming. For much of the church today, we have Ichabod, the glory has departed. We have it written over our churches. Listen to Jesus' final words. In Luke 22, 15, he says, I've been desperate to have this covenant meal. I talked about that last time. I'm desperate, desperate to meet with you. Remember, he wanted to break that covenant meal so that he could actually give them 
that virus. He said, I've given you the kingdom. I've transferred it to you. In John 17, verse 22, he says the same thing. God, I've done it. I've finally given them the kingdom. I've given them that same glory that you gave me. I've transferred it to them. They're now carrying this virus that's inside them. Wherever they go, it will be contagious. And his death on the cross released such an extraordinary virus of life. And anybody who comes in contact with that risen Christ Jesus becomes contagious. But we've got to meet him. We've got to be fused together with him. And once we get into him and we get linked and bonded with him, then he begins to transfer all of his character to us. We get fused together. We get touched. These are what I call the kingdom virus of his purity, which is his character, his lifestyle, his single-mindedness, his set-apartness, his holiness. We get infected with his purpose, his divine sense of purpose. We get infected with his passion, passion for God, passion for people and souls. We get infected with perseverance, ability to persevere through every trial, and also infected with his power, the ability to move under the anointing. And those things are so important that we then become infected with it. But we've got to be contagious. And as I travel around the Western world, I find that church is not contagious. I worked with Brother Yun for five years. That form of Christianity is contagious because their entry point to the kingdom is I'm willing to die. They're not in until they're willing to lay their life down. But once they're willing to lay their life down and sacrifice their life, they become viral. They become contagious. Everywhere they go, everywhere, people begin to catch it and they begin to find find the glory of God in their lives. I'm in trouble because I've got so much more to, to impart to you. Help me, Father. So, I'll have to skip out a bit, but in 1 John 5, 4, it talks about our faith, how we come into this, how he opens our eyes of revelation. And then Ephesians 1.18, he talks about how we come to know who we are in God. You know, he opens our eyes to have the knowledge of the hope of our calling, knowledge of, of the incredible inheritance that he's got for us and the power that's available. All of that is in the body. And then the seventh face of the cross. We need to get this. We then finally get covenanted back into the world to seek and save the lost. We cross over from sin into suffering. And this is where we cross back into the world. It's a covenant to cross back into the world and it embraces sacrifice. It embraces suffering. I know it's not a nice word, but we've got to be willing to embrace suffering and sacrifice. And if you read with me 1 Peter 4.1, let's read it together. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Sin, suffering. We've got to have the same attitude as Jesus. And he said, listen, you've got to pick up this weapon. This will be your greatest weapon. Arm yourselves with this attitude of sacrifice and suffering because once you pick that up, you're done with sin. You're not going to mess around anymore. You are going to be militant in this world. There's going to be something contagious about you. We covenanted our lives back into that harvest field. We become broken bread for the world. We've got to put the bread of our lives back into his hands. We've got to say, Father, I know I'm nothing. I may be just some, you know, a few loaves and fishes, some of us have got even less. We just say, but God, I'm going to put this little bit of me in your hands. And I pray, Father, that you'll break me and you'll do a miracle of multiplying me to the multitudes. You know, the extraordinary thing happens when you put little, little us just in his hands. We're nothing special. We look like, you know, the loaves and fishes. We're just insignificant. But then suddenly, he begins to use us to feed feed. Suddenly thousands and thousands of people have been fed by our lives and we think, whoa, how does that happen? People are being fed by my life. Suddenly there's a viral multiplication of who I am and who he is in me out to the world. And we become his ambassadors with his power, his authority. 
And it's not me, it's Christ in me that's the hope of glory. And we're able to say, what I have, I give you. Because we know that inside we have something. What I have, I give you. Rise, be healed. So, let me try and hurry up. Gosh, how am I going to do this? Why is suffering and sacrifice so important? Well, Romans 12, remember, no sacrifice, no fire. But if you look at Romans 8, it says very clearly that we're children, but also we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. No suffering, no glory. And this is the upside down kingdom. Because you see, in the natural world, and you know as well as I do, a virus only lives within people while they're alive. Once they're dead, the virus dies. But in the kingdom, the heavenly virus only lives in dead meat. If you and I come to death, if we're able to live embracing that death, that virus is alive in us. If we want to live, it will kill that virus of the kingdom. We've got to recognize there's something happening here. And that is why in 2 Corinthians 4.11, it says that we are always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. You see, death produces life. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It's a different message. It's understanding that sacrifice is our greatest weapon. And while we embrace that, we will see so many people rescued from the gates of hell. Because suffering and persecution becomes a gift from God. I begin, need to begin to close. So let me just sum up the message of the cross. Now, Jesus poured out his blood on the cross so that we could be rescued from the power of Satan, sin, and self. And that blood sealed an unbreakable covenant that guaranteed us freedom from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And by faith in that covenant, we're then empowered to cross over. We cross over into Christ, into his body, and then into the world. We cross over into his sonship, then into his service, and then into his suffering. We've looked at the two sides of the cross. We've looked at the mercy side that's all about us and the grace side that's all about him and his kingdom. And we've got to recognize that what we're living in at the moment is a Jabez generation. 1 Chronicles 4.10. You probably have read the Jabez prayer. Lovely prayer, wonderful. I don't want to get at it. But the trouble is we're in a Jabez generation. It just says, God bless me. Extend my territory. Don't let me come to harm. You know, see, that's wonderful. God wants to bless us, and he will bless us. But then we've got to be like Jesus, have this same attitude which was in Christ Jesus, that he made himself nothing. He gave up all his rights, made himself nothing, became a servant, took on service. He humbled himself even to death on the cross, sacrifice, suffering. It's a journey downwards. Yes, we, he wants to bless us. But don't stop with where this generation has stopped. This is a Jabez generation that just wants to be blessed. We've got to go beyond that. And in Luke 12, 49, Jesus says, I've come to bring this fire on earth, and I wish it was already kindled. He was desperate to bring this fire back onto the earth, desperate to bring something of his power, his viral kingdom back into us. That's why he came. He came to infect us with his faith, his hope, his love. But sadly, so much of the world system has killed that love with disappointments, with offenses. It's killed that faith with unbelief, with rationalism, with humanism. It's killed love by injecting political correctness, fear back into the body. I want to complete the story I began at the beginning, talking about Paul. 
pull one through. Spent all that time going around those five cities. He'd had a major breakthrough. Finally, major breakthrough. And he saw that power of the cross really worked in Corinth. So in Acts 19, one man who understood the power of the cross walked into Ephesus. One man who was contagious, who had the glory of sonship, service, sacrifice, just in him. He was literally a, a reflector of the full kingdom of God. One man walked into a city and all hell began to flee and all heaven broke loose in that city. One man brought the kingdom to Ephesus. It was an extraordinary revival. The witches and the woozles and every other demonic threw out their witchcraft stuff into the streets. They burned millions of pounds worth of stuff. The glory came. The shadow healed. The power of God just broke loose because one man understood the full power of the cross and what it had accomplished. It started a mega battle for Europe and a mega battle for Asia. But hell unleashed an extraordinary fury. Just like in Luke 3 and 4, when Jesus stepped into sonship, all hell broke loose to stop him. This was identical. Now the body of Christ was stepping into their sonship. All hell broke loose to stop the body of Christ working in its sonship and in its power. And so the enemy unleashed amazing, unbelievable <coughs> persecution. In AD 64, a lot of Rome was burnt down. And Emperor Nero blamed the Christians. And thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians were burnt, were martyred. They were dipped in tar and just used as candles around their temples and orgies. It was just horrific. It was just unbelievable carnage as the enemy came in to destroy the church. In AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was knocked down. Every single one of the apostles was killed. Peter was just about to be martyred. And I'm telling you this for one reason. It looked as if the devil had won. We are in exactly the same position in this nation. It looked as if the devil had won. The kingdom of darkness seemed to have triumphed, and there were only a few weak remnants struggling to survive. And that was the background to Peter's apostolic letter, when he suddenly said, come on, listen, I want you to grab this, pick up this weapon, arm yourself with the attitude of being willing to sacrifice and suffer. And as he wrote that letter, it released an unshakable faith through those remnant believers. Because he was convinced, unshakable kingdom faith, that all the Old Testament prophecies were going to happen. He was convinced that the kingdom of God was going to break through. He was convinced that Jesus was going to come in mighty power. He was convinced that the reign of God was going to start on earth, that something was going to break through. But it was a long time coming. In AD 68, that's four years after the persecution began, John himself, the apostle, came to Ephesus. He took over and led apostolically that church in Ephesus for 12 years. Didn't break through. He got arrested, sent off to Patmos. Dark clouds gathered over the whole of the known world. And he wrote a letter to the body of Christ saying, listen, Ephesus, I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. But I've got one thing against you. You have lost your first love. You see, sadly, the body of Christ has, we have been focusing on getting our first love back. But we've lost his first love, which is souls. Our first love is him. But it's more. He died for the world. We've got to pick up his first love, which is for souls. And so began 30 years of the crucifixion of the church. Unbelievable carnage. And I have to say that I believe that we're going to see unbelievable carnage within the body of Christ. 
I think we're going to go through some really rough times. And we have got to grab and get hold of the cross now and persevere absolutely unflinching, unswerving, knowing that the devil is defeated. Because you see, what the devil doesn't understand, as he gathers with his dark clouds of secularism and atheism and Islam over England and Europe, what the devil doesn't understand is that when he crucified Jesus, he actually released an incredible viral power out to the world. He released life. And when he crucifies the church for those 30 years, he released an unbelievable power that spread right through that known world. What happened in AD 95 was that John got released from Patmos, and he came back and walked in to the temple of Artemis and Diana. During those years in Patmos, he had come to faith in the power of the gospel. He confronted that demonic thing. The, the, the altar just split in two, and half the temple just fell down. And from that moment, it was all over for the demonic realms within Europe. The cult of Artemis Diana died out, and within 50 years, there was hardly even a trace of it. And Ephesus became the center of the advancement of revival for 200 years. The power of God just exploded over the whole of Europe for 200 years, exactly the same way that it happened in China. 1949, every Bible burnt, every pastor killed or sent to labor camp, every church closed, total crucifixion of the body of Christ, but God took over. The devil does not understand. The Spirit of God exploded, and the body of Christ in 50 years went from 800,000 to 80 to 100 million people. The virus was released again into the church. We may well, as the church of Jesus Christ, have to go through that crucifixion to bring us back to the same viral form of Christianity. God forbid it, but it may well have to happen. We might have to go through that crucifixion here in Europe, here in Britain, before we finally get to that viral form of Christianity which will sweep not only through Europe, but through the world. So let's read together the final scripture on the cross in the New Testament. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, it's all about Jesus. We've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. We've got to lock onto him. Stop looking into your shadow. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He begins our faith. He finishes our faith. It's all through kingdom faith. But there's a great joy before us. There is incredible harvest that is happening. Even now, as you know, the persecution is happening across North Africa, people are coming to Christ in huge numbers. Persecution and revival, riot, revival. That is the pattern. But we've got to endure the cross. There will be persecution. We've got to scorn its shame. And we've got to sit down. Cathizo. That means to sit down comfortably as if it's a place where we really belong. We are seated with him in heavenly places, knowing that it doesn't matter what the devil does, the cross has won the day. We are a victorious people. It doesn't matter what the devil does to us. He may try to obliterate us. He may try to oppress us. He may throw out law cases against us and try and wipe out all sorts of things. Yes, we're going to get all hell thrown at us, but we are condemned to victory because of the power of the cross. He cannot, cannot stop what is about to happen across Europe. There's a signpost in heaven, wanted empty, broken lives who are willing to embrace the cross because there is no defense against an army of dead warriors. Father, we want to thank you for this time. Thank you for this challenge. Father, I pray that we would be those who do embrace the cross, 
By faith, we cross over into that fullness of our sonship, learning to serve and to suffer with you. Father, what a, what a salvation. What a destiny. What an inheritance. My God, my God, my God. My God, my God, let there be revelation to each one of us. Let us come to such a place of praise that our eyes will be fixed onto you, that we would know our God is a victorious God. Our God is a victorious God. We are condemned to victory because of the power of that cross. Well, as we're just meditating on that, I just want the band to come. And this is not a time where we're going to have, this is not a ministry day. But I know that you need to just meditate on a lot of this. But I want us to be like Paul in prison who just decided to praise him. And many of you are going through stuff, going through difficult times. But I want us to fix our eyes on Jesus and just begin to praise him. There is such earth-shattering, prison-shattering faith that happens when we begin to praise him. Daily praise him. Even when it's all going wrong, just praise him. Just praise him. Just praise him. So as we come to a close, let's stand and let's just praise him. And let's keep on asking for the revelation of the cross to break loose in our lives. <laughs>